Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. I was asked a little while ago by a group of folk who were having a Bible study. I was passing by whether Allah, the God of the Muslim faith, is the same God that we worship. And I thought, flip, what I do to deserve that? I've heard it described as a, as a complicated question because, you see, Allah is not a proper name like Baal or Shiva or Rod. It's just the Arab word for God. And Muslims have co-opted the Old Testament and Jesus into their faith, so arguably there's a, there's a shared origin going on so maybe it's just the same God understood a little differently my answer though was that our God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who raised him from the dead having first delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery I suggested that no Muslim would describe Allah on those terms. In fact, they would be quite appalled by that description. I agree with them. That is clearly not the God that Muslims worship. Allah has no son. Our God and Allah share some values like the importance of human community, hospitality, and abhorrence for idols. Each claims to have created the universe and will wrap it all up in judgment at the end of all things. However, they are not even close to being the same being. The God that we worship is not some sort of abstraction or concept. Our God is personal and active, dynamic even. We, the people of God, have got to know our God through how he has dealt with us through our history from the very beginning. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this series now. We know him most clearly through what he has done. Allah is not our God because Allah is utterly distant. He's up there somewhere, he's remote, he's unknowable. Whereas Yahweh, the God revealed in the Old Testament, is the fierce lover of his people. He's the guy who desperately wants to hang on to his girlfriend and is really unhappy when she starts making eyes at other guys at the dance. His son Jesus, revealed in the Gospel, is the suffering servant of his creation, who gave up his place in glory to become one of us, to walk our path, to get his hands dirty in creation, like we do. And the Holy Spirit revealed in Acts is he who gives us life, who brings us together to be the body of Christ. This is a very dynamic act of God that we worship. Nothing like Allah up there 
soaring above his creation in splendid isolation. No. I spoke last week about Abraham and Sarah from Genesis 12, who God promised would be the parents of a great people, a great nation. And through that nation, all the world would be blessed. Their family grew, and eventually through drought and circumstance, they ended up in Egypt, where eventually they were enslaved to be pyramid builders. Well, God raised up Moses to lead them out of captivity, to bring them back to the land that he had promised Abraham, the land of Canaan, what's now called Palestine or Israel. While leading them out of Egypt and into the Sinai Desert and through that process, God made them into his people, into a nation. Now, a nation defined by a relationship with its God was not that unusual in the ancient Near East. If you were Egyptian, you worshipped Ra, fellow on the right. If you were a Moabite, you worshipped Chemosh, chap on the left. Looks a bit scary if you run into him in a dark alley. And if you're an Egyptian, it's not so much that you didn't believe that Chemosh was real, he just wasn't that relevant to you. Unless you happen to be visiting Moab or moving there, in which case you might throw in a prayer or a sacrifice to Chemosh just as a bit of an insurance policy because these gods were pretty fickle and they had a notoriously short fuse. Well, Israel's story in Egypt begins with a contest between Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and the Egyptian gods. They had a whole collection of them. They were like the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. They had a, a tribe of them. Yahweh's man Moses is trying to get Ra's man Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But Pharaoh won't budge. He likes his pyramids. Yahweh sends plagues of frogs and locusts and all sorts, but still, Pharaoh is resolute. Then, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A year old male, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire of unleavened bread and bitter herbs. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in that land, both humans and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This was the plague that finally tipped Pharaoh into despair. And he let the Israelites leave Egypt 
for the moment. He chased after them when he changed his mind. And this text describes the essence of the feast of Passover, which faithful Jews have been celebrating every year since. That's about 3,000 years, give or take. God's delivery of his people was an act of salvation. They were saved from their appalling situation in Egypt and God's judgment on that society. Okay. Drop down a level. Look at how they were saved. They were told to find a perfect lamb, which they were to kill, and the blood of the lamb was to be smeared on the doorposts of their homes. This would save them from the coming judgment. They were saved by the blood of the lamb. Ring any bells? You might recall a few weeks back that when God cast Adam and Eve out of Eden, he killed animals to make clothes for them to wear. He still provided for his people even when they had sinned. So I guess that's about warmth. But also he covered their shame. He addressed the effects of their sin with those clothes. In the New Testament, when John the Baptist first saw Jesus coming towards him in the Jordan River, and I love this picture, do you notice you can't see John's face? He's pointing towards Jesus. He decreases as Jesus increases. In John 1.29 he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That idea is repeated in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Revelation, which describes Jesus as Lamb upon the throne. There's this golden thread running from Genesis through Israel's history, through the prophets, the Gospels, Paul's letters, and Revelation. The thread is of a God who dies for his people so as to save them and to make them his own. It's the big story of the Bible. The salvation of humanity, all, all of us. Now, after Moses led the people out of Egypt, and famously through the Red Sea, if you've seen the Charlton Heston movie, God made a covenant with his people Israel. Now, a covenant is a sacred agreement. Those of you who are married, or have been married, entered into a covenant. You all who were here in 2016 entered into a covenant with me when you called me to be your pastor. Now the quick version of the Mosaic Covenant was that God would give his people Israel the land of Canaan and in return they were to worship him as their God, him only. As well, he had a whole social vision of how he wanted them to live. And this included the Ten Commandments, which are, I think, more like expressions of the moral heart of God than they are rules or laws. Then there are the moral laws. What happens if somebody murders somebody or commits adultery or steals? The social laws, property, inheritance, marriage, that kind of stuff. Food laws, what you can eat, what you can't, how you cook things. No pork. Very sad for them. Like my bacon. Purity laws 
on menstruation, seminal omission, skin disease, mildew. It's at an incredibly detailed level of their lives. Feasts, and there's a lot of those. Ancient Jews knew had a party. The Day of Atonement, Passover that I mentioned earlier, Feast of Tabernacles, and half a dozen others. Sacrifices and offerings. Sin offering, burnt offering, Passover sacrifice, meal offering, peace offering, drink offering, thank offering, incense offering, scapegoat, first fruits, and an old pile more. Instructions for the priesthood, what the high priest was supposed to be doing and, and tithing, giving. Instructions regarding the tabernacle tent that they worshipped in, which were later applied to the temple in Jerusalem. And then forward-looking instructions about what the country was to do, the nation was to do, when they decided to have a king. There are over 600 individual laws in the books. They're littered through the books of Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. And the book of Deuteronomy is like a lazy man's guide to it. It's a summary of the whole deal that God made with his people. And one of the interesting things about this book, it's written in the same form as treaties between two kings. We have some ancient treaties and they're a very similar structure to Deuteronomy. Each makes promises to the other and then there's a whole series of blessings if the promises are met and curses if they're not. It's one of the ways we know that Deuteronomy dates from 1200 BC, give or take, not much later, because that format had ceased to be used. When Deuteronomy 8, God says this, You shall eat your fill, and bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. When you have eaten your fill, think of this over lunch, and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied, then do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. He made water flow for you from flint rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna that your ancestors did not know to humble you and to test you and in the end to do you good do not say to yourself my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth but remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today if you do forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve and worship them I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord is destroying before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 14 and 16. Point the people back to the story of how they had been saved in the past, delivered from slavery. Passover festival, I showed you before, is an annual reminder of God having saved his people, of his grace and his mercy and his love for them. They were saved by God's grace. Obedience to law was the response to grace that God was looking for. They were not saved by keeping the law, as sometimes we imagine. Obedience followed grace, much as it hopefully does for us today. 
Now, the writer of the Hebrews very helpfully gives a bit of a commentary on this whole thing, this covenant. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. This was when they're in the desert. For a tent was constructed. The first one in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence, that's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies, and it stood the golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there were a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. That's the Ten Commandments. Above it were the cherubim, that's angels, of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. This is sort of their collection of sacred relics. Such preparations have, having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. That, that's making all these sacrifices that they're told to make. But only the high priest goes into the second, the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum. And he but once a year, and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins, committed unintentionally by the people. Unintentionally. The sacrifice for sin, the ways in which God's people fall short of how he would have us live, was very limited. Once a year, the high priest made a sacrifice for the unintentional sins of the people. There was no sacrifice for the intentional sins of the people. Sin offering is set out in Leviticus 4. Go back and have a read of it. The whole sacrificial system has got this glaring hole in it. It points towards the need for something more. The Mosaic Covenant taught that sin needed addressing, but by a greater, more complete sacrifice. And the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah echoed this when he said this. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. It was always God's plan that that Mosaic covenant of sacrifice was going to be superseded by another, grounded in all of God's people having a relationship with him. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago Peter quoting Joel's prophecy in Acts 2 that God's spirit would be poured out on everyone, not just the priests and the kings and the special people, but all of us. Our sin, the way that by nature we wander away from his will, would be forgiven. This is what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. That we are set free to delight in our walk with God, with his people. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17 something very curious, that he'd come to fulfill the law. Anyone ever wondered what that meant? 
I've come to fulfill the law. Odd thing to say, don't you think? You know, laws are broken, they're amended, they're repealed, but we don't usually talk about them being fulfilled. But consider these verses from Romans and Galatians. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. This is the important bit. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Then in Galatians. Now before faith, that's before Christian faith, came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian, our headmaster, if you will, until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave nor free, there is no longer male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The purpose of the law was to show us our sin, the fact that we miss the mark, that we don't make what God would have us be. Hence our need for forgiveness, hence our need for Jesus. The law is a great big arrow. You've seen Hussein Bolt doing this business? Probably more athletically than I am, but that's it. That's what the law is. When I was a young fella, I spent a lot of time on the farm, sheep farm. My uncle, aunts and cousins gave my mother, who was a solo mum, a bit of a break. My uncle and I would go out mustering sheep, which the dogs and I would drive towards the gate on their way to the woolshed. When the dogs would not do what he wanted them to do, he would lose his rag like nothing I'd ever seen before or since. Listening to him, I learned to swear like a trooper. Got home effing and blinding, didn't impress my mother very much. Law, morality, conscience, your sense of right and wrong are like the sheepdogs in your life, driving you towards Jesus. Take notice of what they say. If you've not yet made your peace with God, he's hoping that your pangs of conscience or guilt will lead you home to him. To confess that you are a sinner and begin a new life with his spirit firmly lodged in your heart here with his people, like the prophet Joel foresaw so long ago. That's what Paul means by the word faith in Galatians 3. Trusting the Lord with your life. If that's you, come home. If you've made your peace with God, then you are forgiven. Nothing further is required. When we who are followers of the Lord have sinned and we know it, our guilty conscience is not intended to make us try harder or not to bother because it's just too hard to be godly. Rather, it's to go to the Lord to confess and restore 
our fellowship with him. Our relationship is secure. Our fellowship comes and goes. Nurturing unconfessed sin is like the sheep who wanders away from the flock. Over time, the shepherd's voice gets a little bit more distant. You can't hear the dogs. The ground is slippery. There's no fences to protect you from hazards like open drains or road traffic or steep cliffs. Following the shepherd closely is the better and safer way. Our sense of right and wrong, our awareness of our sinfulness, still has a purpose in our Christian life. It is to point us to our need to lean into the Lord, to seek and follow his will and way for our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for all of us, from skeptic to seekers to Christians to ripe saints. Lord, help us to hear your voice, know your leading, and to come around you, to lean into you and to lean into your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.